0: Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Uh, My name is Mason, I'm the host, and today we're talking to Christian Shaw, who, uh, I love these kinds of episodes because I got started in the adventure world by doing adventures that were also uh, purpose-driven, like whether it's raising money for something, and you might say, oh, that, that concept has been just beat to death, but I think it's a great concept to do an adventure or do some challenge in an effort to make the world a better place, Christian is paddling the Mississippi River on a paddleboard, um, 150 miles of it, uh, along the Louisiana border to spend 10 days paddling the Mississippi River uh, near the proposed site of Formosa Plastics. And what uh, what Christian is doing, he is trying to basically stop them or, or, or get some sort of awareness around the fact that these plastic plants uh, release a ton. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not even close to literal. Tons and tons of plastic residue, these things called nurdles, which are small pieces of plastic that they use to melt and then shape things. Uh, Those nurdles just get dumped into rivers, like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them every day, if not millions of them a day. Uh, And it just these little plastic beads that just fish eat and all this terrible stuff. But um, Christian is just trying to bring awareness to this stuff, and he's doing it through adventure. So I appreciate that he's been doing it for a long time. So uh, I hope you learned something. I hope you get inspired to do something. And I'm always I'm I'm always for folks who are trying to make the world better, especially through the means of adventure. So Christian, thank you for coming on, sharing your story. You can learn more about Christian and his story at PlasticTides.org, uh, as well as at Plastic Tides or uh, at Chris Crosshaw, um, all on Instagram. But yeah, go ahead and check that out. Enjoy the episode. Let's jump in. All right, folks. Well, uh, welcome to uh, Adventure Sports Podcast. Today, we are talking to Christian Shaw about, man, something, something that's pretty interesting. I'm, I'm excited to get into it. Christian, welcome to the show thank
1: you
0: great to be here yeah glad we got to finally connect man for folks that don't know um man it took us a while to get get on the phones a lot of rescheduling but here we are and we almost didn't have audio for a little bit so it's been obstacle after obstacle but hey that's uh the the story you're facing i'm sure had a lot more obstacles than this so it's it's probably probably nothing to you now
1: (laughs) yeah no that's a theme and and you know i think um you know, as, as any adventure knows, you know, obstacles also make the best
0: stories. So, you know, I think we're off on a good foot here. Go for success or go for a story. I heard someone say that the other day and I'm like, yep, that's what it is. That is what it is. It's either success or a story or both, but usually it's the failures that are the best stories. Um, well, dude, I always ask this first, where are you coming from today? And and also where is home if those aren't the same places? Yeah, sure. So I'm calling in from Santa
1: Cruz, California, today, and I've been living out here for just about five years, and I'm originally from Ithaca, New York, which is in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York.
0: Oh, no way, man, Santa Cruz, that is awesome. I used to go there all the time. used to live and work in in the Sierras, and uh, that was our beach escape. yeah, man, that's awesome. so so what do you what do you do out there? I'm sure you surf obviously paddleboard or so but are are you into what 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 adventure sports are you into i guess uh pretty much everything
1: so uh, my partner Celine and i moved out here really in large part to be in a place where we could do a bunch of the things that we love to do in the ocean without having to travel and feeling compelled to go you know to some exotic places and also we're both entrepreneurs and so you know being in in this town and close to the bay area and so forth had a lot of advantages and uh yeah I, I love to do everything in the ocean uh surfing of course and i really love kite surfing as well so that's pretty popular here um it's one of my favorite things i've been messing around with kites for i don't know almost 15 years probably and uh combining surfing with a kite and really letting the kite get you in the
0: spot and then you know, surfing the wave is is what I love to do. Oh, that's awesome, man! Were, were you doing that in New York in Ithaca?
1: I was, yeah. Actually, I learned to to kiteboard um, in in Ithaca. We have a I grew up on a lake, Cayuga Lake, and we have a really cool tight knit career of kiteboarders. Maybe you know a dozen of us on a big day. And you know, when I was growing up. Sort of as a teenager, there were a number of mentors, you know, older guys in the kiting crew that kind of showed me the ropes and it was a really, really good place to to get my start and also really challenging. So traveling anywhere else where the wind is consistent and not so gusty and stuff like that is
0: actually quite a bit easier after uh, growing up in Ithaca. That's awesome. So so tell us a little bit about like what what adventures you were grew up growing up doing or what you were doing? Because this this paddleboard trip that we're going to talk about, um, I'm sure that wasn't your first adventure. What what kind of things were you growing up doing as far as like trips or journeys that you were taking? Or or was this your first?
1: So this wasn't my first stand up paddleboard expedition. We started Plastic Tides back in 2014 with our inaugural expedition, which was 10 days self-supported, going around the island of Bermuda. Researching ocean plastics and creating an educational web series. And that was really where we got our start, uh, reaching out to and inspiring young people and, you know, educating them about the plastic pollution crisis, but also trying to bring this fun, adventurous, adventurous appeal to science and conservation. And so that was the, our first official expedition. But to answer your question more specifically, uh, growing up, I can point to one trip really in particular that was uh, really formative for me. A a canoe trip in Algonquin Provincial Park. Or actually, I think it's a national park in, in Canada um, with uh, a couple of good friends of mine and, and our dads. And that was my first, and I was, I don't know, probably 10 or 11, 12, somewhere in there. That was my first time ever really doing like a multi-day backcountry type of experience growing up. With my parents, my mom's a science teacher and my dad's uh, industrial health and safety professional and a you know, scientist and, uh, you know, a naturalist and, and conservationist as well. And so I was exposed to a lot of nature in the outdoors growing up, but in terms of, you know, really serious backcountry type experiences it's not something that i got into so much until i was a little bit older
0: when did you start making some of these trips i guess about something more than uh than just doing the trip you know being aware of like the environmental impact and the, and, and being conscious of that or tying your experiences to a cause like wh- when did that start happening for you because clearly you know. We grow up enjoying adventures, but at some point we become aware of maybe things in the world that need to be better. When it, wh- what happened for you? Was there an instance or was it a slow progression? If you know what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're saying, and and for me it was definitely a slow progression. As I just became more and more educated, I had that experience, you know, in middle school. I would say um, in Algonquin, and and also at that time I really got into. Uh, Primitive pursuits. Uh, th- this program that really unique that we have in Ithaca, where we were, you know, making fire with friction, and you know, learning how to make throwing sticks and shelters, and uh, you know, vessels to to boil water with rocks using sap and bark, and you know, all these really interesting things. Um, and so that definitely was a sort of a some early experiences that piqued my interest. And then, you know, as I went through my sort of, I guess, high school education, just becoming more and more disillusioned with what I was sort of learning about the environmental issues we were facing and sort of the general lack of concern shown by society and and so, by the time I I was ready for college, I was I was very much interested in studying sustainability, um, and and learning more about these things. And then it wasn't until I was in college that I really started looking at you know applying this combination of you know passion and purpose, and you know combining the outdoors and adventure and the things that that I really loved that got me excited with trying
0: to address these issues and create a positive impact. That's really cool. So, so what, what do you, you mentioned your first inaugural adventure, uh, with, uh, Plastic Tides being a, a paddle around Bermuda, which just sounds incredible. What was the mission after that? Cause that was obviously to kick things off, but what do y'all do? You know what I'm saying? What do you do now and and I know you still do adventures but like what is the purpose? What are you trying to do? How do people get involved? Let's just start that early cuz I think it's interesting.
1: Great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So our mission is to inspire and catalyze action toward a plastic-free future through adventure, education, and youth empowerment. And so we've just talked a little bit about the adventure component and how that ties into education and awareness and uh And also touched on youth, but really that's where we've been leaning in uh, more recently. And so we had some early experiences working with young people and helping them succeed in projects in their schools and communities. And we've taken that and scaled it with our global youth mentor program, where we're connecting young people in middle and high school who are motivated to make a change and address the issues around them and they you know want to do a, a project in their school or community something like planting an orchard or uh, helping their school switch from plastic utensils to a sustainable alternative or looking at the hydration infrastructure and seeing hey do students have are students using single use plastic water bottles at the school if so why you know do they trust the drinking water coming out of the drinking fountains are is the hydration infrastructure up to date so students can actually refill water bottles you know all these questions and so we work with students and and some students come to us with completely unique original ideas for instance a student last year who s- studied plastic pollution on the most polluted beach in Peru and and tra- traced it upstream And looked at the impacts and and how everything was connected from the watershed down to his local beach and the community there and has been working towards legislation and lots of other ways to implement change on that front and so we have students like that and then other students who just want to do something and so we have these project models which are establish like the examples I just provided around the orchards and hydration and utensils and a handful of others. And so we connect the students with adult mentors. And then the mentors provide just this consistent support and guidance throughout the course of the the
0: year long project and help the students succeed in the end what have been some of the major wins you can point to that y'all have uh, gotten across the finish line at plastic tides
1: so i mean with within the gym program we've got a lot of really exciting projects going on and have had a lot of success already with our first couple cohorts of students uh, but going back further I think one of the biggest wins we had really early on was with the, the microbeads. I'm not sure if you're
0: familiar with plastic microbeads from cosmetic products and not, not terribly. I I ran into that researching you and um, can you, yeah, go ahead and explain it.
1: Yeah. So, so you asked a little earlier, you know, we, we did this expedition in Bermuda and that's how we got our start, but then sort of what was our mission after that? And, and so the, the, Expedition Bermuda was actually never meant to become plastic tides as an organization. It was it was just initially a one-off project and and it grew from there. After that trip, we had we had gotten a lot of support, got sponsors, you know, and and felt like we had some momentum and that we were, you know, doing something impactful. And we shortly thereafter learned about the study that had been done by five gyres on the Great Lakes and the discovery basically of plastic microbeads from cosmetic products as one of the most prevalent things in their findings. And so this was just starting to emerge as an issue. And to me, it was really... Like, clearly, really, clearly wrong because th- these companies were putting these beads into products that were meant to be flushed down the sink or the shower or so forth and were too small to be filtered out by water treatment plants. And so we're destined for the, you know, the waterways. And it seemed like a really good area to focus. And we had just developed this trawl for sampling the surface water around Bermuda. And so we adapted that to search for microbeads and we set off from... So this is actually myself and my, my partner, Gordon Middleton, who, one of the other founders of Plastic Tides. Uh, there were four of us on the first expedition and, and just my, Gordon and myself on this Erie Canal expedition. And we set off from Ithaca heading towards Albany, the capital, to sample the waterways and also carry this message about our concern around these products to the state capital. And so we did that trip and collected a bunch of samples and then worked with the Great Lakes Plastic Pollution Research Lab at SUNY Fredonia to analyze the samples and proved for the first time the existence of plastic microbeads in inland waterways. So in lakes and rivers yeah, along the Erie Canal watershed. And then we basically got swept up in this national coalition, which culminated in the Microbead Free Waters Act being passed at the end of 2015, uh, signed by President Obama. And so since then, microbeads have been phased out in products, and it's not something that is really talked about anymore. But that was a huge win for us early on and and uh was how we really solidified ourselves as an organization.
0: Man, that is awesome. I I love to hear when when you're not planning on turning it into an organization and it becomes one. You know what I'm saying? Like because the <laughs> impact of the project was so great. Um, so from there, plastic tides Got the funding. It got the uh, I guess the sponsorship, like you mentioned. Is this what you do now? Is like this what you've been doing since 2014?
1: Yeah, this is what I've been doing since 2014. I mean, it's been a bumpy road for sure, and you know <laughs> <laughs> we're a small bootstrapped organization, so you know we've been running on a shoestring since the very beginning, and you know have been working on pretty much a volunteer basis, um, just. You know, with the capacity to pay stipends for certain key individuals in the past year or two, um, but myself and my partner have also done other things over the years uh, to basically pay the bills. So yeah, this is this is what we've been doing since then. But it's you know uh, we haven't been <laughs> fortunate enough to have be able to do it full time, um, which is also part of the you know the struggle in in a sense because. You have to balance you know everything with life's needs, so that's been that's been our story, but we have a really awesome team, and we've created a lot of opportunities for young people and you know, volunteer roles, and then you know a lot of people growing within the organization as well and so that's something we're really proud of too
0: very cool, um yeah, man, it's I can imagine it's a struggle, especially. You're trying to fight back from what so many of these companies are doing, making a fortune, ruining things, and you're trying to reverse that, and you, you, you can't find the funding you need because it's not something you can sell. You know, it's crazy. What, what other adventures have y'all done besides the one, the, the Mississippi trip that we're getting ready to talk about? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor, Gnarly Nutrition. I know you've heard about them recently because we've had some guests on recently that credits Gnarly for helping them do the the adventures that we talk about on this show. So uh, Chris Fisher was one who did the Vert Max. He did 400,000 feet of elevation gain in a month check out that episode. Uh, that was not too far back. And uh, he credits Gnarly Nutrition for h- keeping him his body literally sustained during that time, just packing in the calories. It's amazing nutrition for anyone doing anything adventure, uh, endurance-based, whether that's in the mountains or bikepacking or whatever. It's a great thing to have with you prior to an, uh, an adventure training and also during an adventure. And also Jason Hardrath, who recently did um, The 100 Fastest Known Times, he did 100 mountains in 50 days and just was slamming Gnarly Nutrition. He also credits Gnarly for essentially keeping his body sustained. And so um, Gnarly Nutrition has been around since 2008. They were born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains uh, and they are committed to educating and inspiring athletes of all levels to be as nutritionally sound as possible. Their nutrition supplements are certified by NSF and have science-backed products free of hormones, free of GMOs, proprietary blends, uh, and nothing artificial. So Gnarly is going to help you get ready and help you sustain during uh, those huge adventure efforts. So if you're looking for the best tasting and the most trusted sports nutrition brand for any endurance athletes, Go to go gnarly and that gnarly.com g-n-a-r-l-y.com and use the code gnarlyadventure15 for 15% off and just you know a personal plug here I love gnarly I love the folks there they're doing such a fantastic job they have been so great to work with uh, they helped provide some products for um, our journey to 100 film series uh, that we were doing giveaways with at the end of every film screening so it's been a pleasure to work with them so far so if you'd like to support folks that are supporting this show definitely go visit gonarly.com. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Oh, there, there have been
1: been many since the Erie Canal. So it's, let's think here. Um, we started in Bermuda. We did a, a 10-day self-support expedition around Bermuda in 2014. And then in 2015, as part of the microbead uh, campaign, actually, we were helping kickstart that in Bermuda. And so to launch the Beat the Bead Bermuda campaign, we were back there doing a bunch of school visits and working with local organizations. And, and we snuck in between a, a jam-packed schedule of other obligations, a nonstop circumnavigation of the island over 20 hours. So we left at, I don't know, 6.30 p.m. or something, just before sunset and then paddled non-stop around
0: the island of Bermuda, which was the first at the time. Wow. That's wild. So cool. So, so, so yeah, let's go ahead and get into the, uh, the adventure that uh, we're really here to talk about, which is the Mississippi River uh, experience, 150 miles. Tell us about that trip and the inspiration behind it because uh, I, I think it's pretty unique. And, and also, how did you... How did you find out about this? You know what I'm saying? Where, where did you find out? How did the idea for the adventure come about?
1: Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. And it's... So this area known as Cancer Alley between Baton Rouge and New Orleans the Mississippi is something that had kind of been on the periphery of my, my radar. And then in 2000, so last year, 2020... So yeah, 2020... I started to see some things about this Formosa plastics plant and and being part of the sort of plastic pollution um, resistance industry, so to speak, uh, this this sort of idea of you know this hub of oil and gas and refineries and everything. In Louisiana was like just always something that kind of was, you know, once again at the corner of my awareness. And once I started following more closely this specific issue with Formosa plastics and diving into it, I realized that this area and that this specific battle to oppose this the construction of the new plant was. Literally at the crux of the plastic pollution issue um, and was you know the sort of most direct way that you can address future plastic pollution plus a whole slew of other issues that are you know mixed in with this and and potentially even more important in certain contexts considering the air pollution and and the environmental racism that's connected to to this pr- these production facilities. So yeah, I, I basically you know kind of progressively learned about it and then you know once I once I really started to see what was going on it was like the light bulb went on and and that happened to correlate with another push from the stop for most plastics coalition led by RISE St. James and Louisiana Bucket Brigade and Healthy Gulf there locally, and then coordinated by Center for Biological Diversity uh, more broadly. And so I got connected with those folks and started to understand more of the details of what was going on and, and started thinking about how I could potentially apply sort of our unique approach in cinnopatel expeditions, research expeditions specifically, to this issue. And there was a lot of focus on the air pollution component because this plant would double the toxic air pollution in that area, which already suffers from very, very high levels of air pollution and rates of cancer and so forth. Um, But on top of that, uh, nurdle pollution, which... Nurdles are pre production plastic pellets. So they're basically the raw material when a uh, virgin plastics production facility creates that plastic. They don't create it in a liquid form, they don't create it in giant blocks. They create these small pellets about five millimeters across called nurdles and those can be loaded into hoppers, into bags, into train cars, into ships, and then can be fed into whatever sort of plastics molding facility or manufacturing process that requires those raw material feedstocks. And in concept, it says, you know, nurdles are, are just fine. However, due to sort of lack of stringent regulations and also financial motivation, they are, they're one of the biggest components of pollution from these facilities. So they're allowed to emit nurdles in the toxic effluent from these plants. And the reason that all of this industry is on the Mississippi River is because it's the only water source that's large enough to dilute the level of pollution. And when it comes to the nurdles, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers considers them inert and non-harmful to wildlife, even though we know that these plastics in the environment actually concentrate toxins and, and accelerate bioaccumulation of the food chain, and which in Louisiana specifically means catfish, which everyone loves to eat, and are delicious, but definitely being threatened by this pollution source. Um, but basically, the nurdles they're once again considered by the army corps as as toxic non-harmful to wildlife and these plants are permitted to discharge nurdles and there's no oversight so the only regulation around it is is uh self-monitoring basically self-reporting and so these plants just report that they emit no nurdles whatsoever when in fact uh our team actually calculated that if this plant were built, they would be emitting on average ten thousand nurdles uh, per minute into the Mississippi river and that's because these things just go everywhere in the production facility, and so you could imagine you know little nurdles you know flying around, getting you know hosed off here and there and and so forth and basically just mixing in with you know the other effluent and they don't put in a filter for them because they're not required to so they just go straight into the river. And so basically this this issue hadn't really been discussed very much. And so I saw an opportunity to to really tie this all together and bring additional awareness. From the river perspective as well.
0: What were you trying to do? Just document, you know, how many existing nurdles there were along the river, or what were you going to try to do as you paddled that 150 mile stretch of the Mississippi? So, the 150 miles
1: is symbolic of the distance from the proposed site of the new plant in St. James Parish to the mouth of the Mississippi River. And so that would be the path that these nurdles would be following if the plant was built. And so I was paddling along that path uh, to bring awareness to that. And then also researching the and documenting the current nurdle pollution along the river blanks because there are already other facilities, you know, producing plastics and emitting nurdles along the length of the Mississippi watershed um, so and there have been spills as well, so they're actually really a large concentration of nurdles downstream from New Orleans uh, because there was a container ship that was came off its mooring and spilled millions and or billions of nurdles uh, into the river right in New Orleans there um, but yeah i was I was basically just adding to the data set and and helping to provide that baseline as well um for if this plant is built
0: holy cow that is wild so so what what were you uh what was the experience tell us about the 150 miles how long did it take and i know you're on a mission but was it enjoyable at all yeah yeah <laughs> like do you still enjoy being out there despite the devastation i if people don't don't know look up nurdles They're the, they it's literally like beads it's like imagine pellets like like pebbles of small pebbles of just plastic and think about how just everywhere that like you said it would just go everywhere but anyway back to the question
1: yeah it just goes everywhere and downstream of the river you know when i was sampling for them it wasn't a matter of of really how many they were there so much as how many i could pick up depending on if they were wet or dry or you know from one spot to the next there were that many they were just i mean everywhere um, which was really shocking to see, but um, but yeah, I, I mean, I I love these kind of adventures. Uh, I, I definitely enjoyed myself out there. I, I mean, this is you know in part a lot of what I really live for, and the Mississippi River. It was my first experience on the Mississippi, and it was incredibly humbling and awe-inspiring, and the that river is just. It's so powerful, and it was really interesting just being a little uh, pedestrian, so to speak, on this massive body of water that is really dominated by commercial activities. Especially in the area that I was in, there's there's not you know ski boats and uh, (laughs) people out paddling in there. Canoes and kayaks recreationally or, or anything like that, the industry as well, I mean, it's just it's, it's, a, it's a really unique experience. And the hazards as well on the river are, are not necessarily what you would expect. What are they? So I mean, the, the most obvious things are, you know, huge tanker ships and, and barges uh, actively pushing up and down. The river, um, but the more omnipresent threat is actually comes from stationary barges. So the river was not at like flood stage, dangerously so, but it was decently high when I was there in April of last year. So the way the river is downstream of Baton Rouge and I think even further upstream from there, but the sake of this conversation, you know the entire section that I'm paddling is contained within levees so the the river was the the path of the river was basically defined you know permanently defined by the creation of these levees, which are essentially massive hills of earth uh, on either side of the river and so naturally the river would have basically moved back and forth across the delta, the actual main channel spraying sort of like a fire hose back and forth throughout time and and shifting constantly. And so about the development of civilization in that area, of course, the levees built. And so what you have is, is basically the river contained within this area. And then when the river is lower, it just... Stays in in kind of the middle, but when it's higher, there's there's a forest that exists um, in most areas between the levee and the river bank itself. It's called the Batcher Forest, and so that area was flooded and and is often flooded. It's mainly willows. Um, while I was there, and so what you have is basically the large, you know, fast flowing river. And then this forest type of transition. And then, in a lot of places, another gap in space between the Batcher Forest and the actual levee wall itself. And so, you could, for instance, paddle in that area in some places if there was something that you wanted to avoid, or if it was windy out on the main river for different reasons like that. And so, that's how the the river is set up, but then, as well in the main river, so always of course, inside of the Batcher Forest towards the main channel, are barges, and so a barge is basically just like a a floating storage unit, um, and it's you know rectangular, and these are what. They can have coal, they can have you know metals, they can have all kinds of things in them, and they're what the the actual tugboats uh, push up and down the river. but they're they're just sort of moored off in places all around the river. and are you are you a paddler, perchance? Yes, I am. Okay. So you understand then, basically, you know, you have this river that's moving. You know, it's not, you know, it's not like there's big rapids or anything in most places, but there's just consistent flow and a lot of water and you have essentially a number of zones where if you were to fall or something were to happen and you were to be, you know, incapacitated in your ability to maneuver and were to float into the front of it's basically like a metal sled with water pushing against it. It's It's just a very scary prospect. Um, And
0: how how close were you getting to some of those?
1: Usually I wasn't getting too close to them, but occasionally, you know, there'd be a situation where I would have to choose. There'd be barges and then there'd be space between the barge and, and the Batcher Forest where there was a channel and, you know, maybe it was windy and the wind was blowing across the river. So I wanted to get the protection. And paddle, and then you know I'd be paddling, and all of a sudden there'd be a tree, I'd have to duck or something, or like you know um situations where you know I'd I'd think, oh maybe I should paddle on on the inside of this row of barges, but then I look on my map on Google Earth and see that in like the last photo that was on there, that whole row of barges actually like was pushing all the way into the trees and against the trees. And so I would have just ran into a dead end of, of flow going into a forest basically and had, to, would have had to figure some way to, you know, tangle myself back out of there. Um, and so, and, you know, and they would be out further in the river, but, you know, basically it was just this sort of omnipresent reminder that, okay, everything's cool, but, if I were to capsize here and then have an issue and then be trying to swim my board or trying to, you know, it could easily go sideways. And, you know, those things were all over the place. And I did have one instance where I I actually hit an eddy line and I capsized and I had a little bit of an issue with my flag off the back of my board. (laughs) And, uh, and it and it took me a minute to get my board over i actually had to i was trying to flip the board from the side that i had fallen off on and uh and it wasn't working and i swam under and then i you know climbed up and i was like just gave one hard kick and just reached for the edge of that board and grabbed it and flipped it up and uh and got my stuff together and you know enough to start paddling again and and actually, fortunately, I didn't look downstream until that moment, and I was I know, fifty feet above one of these barge death traps, basically. Um, but yeah, I, at that point, I was already navigating to safety, so it, it was all right. But I, Holy I got cow. around that, and I went straight into the shore. That was definitely the most exhilarating moment on the whole trip. Just kind of, you know, getting through that, and then realizing, like. How serious the situation actually could have been if I hadn't been able to react
0: as effectively as I did. jeez what What other dangers did you have to worry about out there?
1: So I had a machete for snakes and alligators and so forth. <laughs> <laughs> i didn't i didn't I didn't really see anything that was too scary. I mean, there's poisonous the snakes for sure to be aware of, but um, I did see one snake eating a catfish that was super cool. Uh, when I woke up from uh, this one campsite where I was kind of on this little sandbar up in the Batcher forest. And uh, I watched this snake uh, taking out this fish. I don't think it was a venomous snake. I think it was just a water snake. Um, And yeah, I mean, there's, you know, in terms of the, the wildlife, that was definitely something that I was on edge about beforehand. And from everything I can gather, the gators do not live in the badger forest in the main river. They live nearby in other bayous, but they're really not not seen and not, and not known to inhabit that area. And so, I mean, that was far and above my, my greatest concern,
0: being on an inflatable paddleboard. <laughs> wow. So what do you feel like you walked away from this experience learning or understanding about the river and about pollution. Man, I mean, the biggest
1: thing that I learned about the river, apart from you know how industrialized it is, is is how thriving and and abundant and magnificent it is, especially as you get closer to the end of the river into the Mississippi River Delta. And so that juxtaposition was really stark for me as I. Sort of went into the final days of the trip. You know, you're you're paddling past like some you know refineries still, but you know more dispersed. And then, you know, as you get towards the end of the river, the I mean, the number of bird species that I started to see, and just the activity and and the fish along the riverbanks. I mean, it's really remarkable that the Mississippi Delta is just. It, it should be treated like really like a treasure, you know, by our our society. And to the contrary, it's treated more like our toilet bowl. And so I think that was the biggest takeaway that I had was just, you know, I want to learn more about this place and, and also, you know, learn more about how I can share that experience with people. And, you know, it also speaks to, you know, this pollution thing. It can seem like you know, it can just sort of be washed away by the river, but but it's not true. And and just going there and seeing it firsthand, you really see that. And and actually, the other thing that I that I observed was how the river really does behave like sort of a filter system for the ocean, in that there's a lot of trash in the Batcher Forest uh, downstream of of New Orleans, and as I got, you know, closer to the end of the river, that that really um, started to diminish, and so it was interesting to see how even the nurdles, you know, a lot of these things, they do work their way to the riverbanks and get caught up in in the vegetation and, and the shoreline, and so it's just kind of remarkable to see nature still doing its thing in that regard, uh, trying to keep that trash out of out of the Gulf of Mexico.
0: Wow. It's it's kind of wild how much we've rearranged things. And I'm sure you were seeing that on full display out there.
1: Yeah, you know, I really was. And, you know, you know, once again, back to the hazards, like large ships, you know, the stationary barges and large ships were the two hazards to be most concerned about. You know, and I think, you know, strong currents and eddy lines and whirlpools and things like that were sort of a third. Um, you know definitely less prevalent, but still there, and still especially in big river bends and stuff um, well, and also actually <laughs> the other hazard and why i've paddled I've done some night paddling in in some places, and I'll tell you what I made every effort to get myself off the river, and actually, that would be another big hazard is actually just getting off the river before dark because you can't always just you know, you're paddling and you know I had the trip planned out, but I had a combination of sort of Airbnbs that I was gonna stay at in zones where I didn't really think there could be much hippie camping to be done. And then just the classic like, you know, cruise down the river and find a spot that looks good and you know pull up and go out in the morning kind of deal.
0: That that was that was difficult finding camping.
1: Yeah, well, you know, finding finding camping wasn't wasn't too bad, actually. That that was just a hazard of like, you want to make sure you're getting off the river early enough that if the first place you try and go doesn't work out, you know, you're not like, okay, this is my spot. You pull in and you look and then it's getting dark and you turn around and you have to go back out onto the river and back out into the main flow and look for something else. and And specifically why... That is so is so daunting is um, because of the the random debris that are out there floating in the river, and I mean at one point, I was paddling along with a full-size channel marker, uh, you know solid steel just bobbing up and down <laughs> and <laughs> and it was actually funny because as I was approaching it, I was... At first, I thought it was a stationary channel marker. And then I realized, I was like, wait a minute, and then I caught up to it and of course passed it. And and things of that size, you know, that was... I mean, other large buoys, you know, along the banks that had already washed in um, and other sorts of debris like that. So you always had to be really keeping an eye out for for something like that. And... You know the the inflatable paddle boards are really durable, and I've paddled a lot of rivers on them and bumped up against many rocks and intentionally landed on plenty of rocks as well, um, just messing around and having fun. but if if there's one thing that would scare the heck out of me out there in the middle of the river, I would be starting to lose air out of your board, um, especially with a fully loaded board. And I only had a single chamber uh board as well so you know it would be probably a, a ditch it and try and get to the bank type of situation uh in that instance but i've I've actually kind of pondered on this because they're also double chamber boards and i was thinking at one point I'm like ah, the next trip like this i really need to have a double chamber board but i was kind of playing it out in my head and i was like okay so the outer chamber because a lot of times they're kind of an outer chamber and then more like a central you know one it's like if the outer chamber is punctured i mean i don't know like you're still kind of like sagging and uh, you it might still not you know you might still be abandoning ship at that point so yeah
0: wow man so so is there anything else you'd like to share about the experience or about what you learned with, with listeners or anything else about plastic tides? I don't think there's anything specifically. I mean, you know, I, this this Formosa
1: Plastics issue is ongoing. Uh, it's definitely something to learn about. The injustice and in cancer alley is is really shocking, um, and tragic. And uh, you know, this is like basically the breadbasket of the plastic pollution and petrochemical industry, so to speak. And so, it is the front line in this fight. And so, you know, as an organization, we're really focused on empowering young people individually around the world, uh, on their projects, but then also doing what we can to really shine our, you know, spotlight, albeit small, uh, on the issues that we feel are most important. And this is definitely one of them. So.
0: it's awesome. So what are you, uh, can you tell us more about what you're doing next? With plastic ties and how people can get involved?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we're always looking for mentors. Well, actually, not always, but we we are about to be recruiting mentors for our next cohort uh, and youth leaders as well. So, you know, if you know young people or if you're a young person listening and want to get involved, uh, and we also have internship opportunities available, we have, you know, openings almost all the time for various roles from PR to social media, to working directly with the uh, Global Youth Mentor Program and supporting the mentors and youth leaders. You know, check out our website and um, and we can always use support for our programs as well. So financial support um, is kind of what keeps
0: everything running. Awesome. Well, Christian, thank you for being on Adventure Sports Podcast and telling us a little bit about your uh, your adventure. Right on. Thanks a lot, Mason. I Appreciate it. First of all.